You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Washington Post Live kicked off debate day with a live interview with Democratic presidential candidate Representative Seth Moulton. The three-term congressman from Massachusetts has not been afraid to challenge his own party leadership. And in this interview, he shared what he would do as president of the United States. Let's listen. Good morning. Thanks for get, again to coming to uh, the Washington Post 2020 conversation series. Really appreciate having Congressman Moulton here. This is a series where we have in-depth conversations, no commercial breaks, to go talk about your presidential campaign, where you want to take this country if elected president of the United States. And as Fred was saying, you are a combat veteran, a Marine, four tours in Iraq, Harvard graduate, earned a bronze star, as Fred said. You also beat an incumbent Democrat in 2014 in Massachusetts, now in your third term. So let's please welcome Congressman Moulton here to the Washington Post. So you're not here in Miami. You're flying to Miami tonight, but you're not going to be on the debate stage. That's right. Did the Democratic National Committee make a mistake in how they structured these debates? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure they have the best system set up to actually pick the best nominee to take on Donald Trump. But I knew that getting into this race as late as I did, there was a good chance I'd miss the first debate. You know, the irony is that we had one of our best days on the entire campaign in terms of support we've gotten online uh, when they announced I wasn't in a debate. And my, my, my job here right now is just to introduce myself to more voters because the response we're getting on the ground has been fantastic. It reminds me a lot of that first campaign where it took a long time to just build, build up and you know, get to the point where more Americans knew me. But that's what I'm doing now. Um, I spent this past weekend knocking doors in, in Greenville, South Carolina, in Spartanburg, places that, that a lot of Democrats don't go, but where you actually get to meet voters. That's what will decide this race when people go to the polls in February of next year. But you got to get on stage. DNC are debate. you going to make the second debate? Are you on pace to make? No, I mean my point. I mean, my point is I'm not sure you have to get on stage. We, you know, we're we're looking to make the second debate. But what really matters is meeting voters on the ground. They're the ones who decide this election, not the DNC folks in Washington who decide who's on a debate stage in Miami. So you stay in this race through the summer, through the fall, even if you don't make every single debate stage from here on. Well, I, I mean. I'm going to stay in this race because I'm in it to win. Um, I have an eight-month-old daughter at home. It simply wasn't an option for me to, to get in earlier. And I knew that it would be a risk missing the first debate. But we're getting more press. I mean, look, I'm, I'm here with you today because I'm not in Miami. And, uh, and that's a good thing. So thank you. We're glad you're here. Let's start with a little bit of the news. Robert Mueller is going to testify, the former special counsel on Capitol Hill, mid-July. What do Democrats, House Democrats, you're one of them, what do they expect to hear from him? And will they really focus on intent of President Trump in terms of obstruction of justice or something else? Well, the big debate going on right now in the Democratic Party is whether or not we should move forward with impeachment proceedings. And this is a tough debate because the politics around this are tricky, and Speaker Pelosi and others have made the point that the politics are difficult. But what about the principle? You know, what about just doing the right thing by the Constitution? That's why I support not just having Robert Mueller come to Congress, but moving forward with an open debate before Congress and the American people about whether this president should be impeached. Congress does two things. We debate things and we vote on them. I'm not saying we're ready for a vote yet on impeachment, but we absolutely should be having this debate. You can't just read the executive summary of the Mueller report and not believe that we should be having so what's this the debate. value of bringing Robert Mueller up? To a lot of people have not read the, even the executive summary of the Mueller report. So having the, him come before Congress, I think will make this case more broadly. 
But it's, it's a reason why I was actually the first candidate in this entire massive field to not only say that we should be having the debate on impeachment, but vote for it in the House of Representatives. And at the time I wrote, I said, look, the politics are bad, the timing is terrible, but this is simply the right thing Why to do. Why is it the right thing? What specifically is the issue that makes it the right thing to do? Because we live in a country where nobody is above the law. And Mueller made it clear in his report that he did not clear the president of obstruction of justice charges, but he is not allowed by the Justice Department to prosecute him. So he just handed it to us on a platter because what Constitution does say is that it's Congress's job to hold a president accountable if he or she breaks the law. And it's very clear, and it's, obstruction of justice is one thing. There's the whole emoluments clause. There's a lot of other issues where, where the president has, I think, clearly broken the law. It's our job to have that debate and hold them accountable because we are in a we live in a nation of So you violence. believe the president obstructed justice broke the law it wouldn't be some kind of narrow impeachment about his abuse of power that democrats keep talking about with his refusal to give over documents well actually the point of this whole discussion is that it could be any or all of those things but that's why we need to have the debate when Nixon, the debate over Nixon's impeachment started only 30 percent of the country thought that he should actually be impeached but by having this debate by bringing out more information, not just to Congress, but to the American people, uh, that, that situation changed quite a bit. And that's our responsibility now. Does the president want to be impeached? Does it help him politically? I don't know. It doesn't matter. That's my point. Let's put the politics aside and just do the right thing. I mean, that's the... I didn't swear an oath to protect and defend my party politics. I swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Actually, word for word, the same oath that I swore as a United States Marine officer. I take that oath seriously. What's next at the border? We keep seeing these pictures coming of migrant children, the crisis. First of all, it is a crisis. I'm a Democrat who says it is a crisis at the border. And it's a crisis because you have migrants dying in detention facilities or crossing the river in that, um, that frightful picture that we saw on the internet yesterday but also because we do have historic numbers of migrants coming from South, uh, from South and Central America especially, and we don't have a plan to deal with them. We don't have enough uh, judges to hear their cases. Um, we don't have the facilities to hold them. And, and fundamentally, we don't have any plan to stop the flow at its source. This is a great example of why national security matters in this race and why it matters to Americans here at home. What we should be doing is having a targeted aid program to Central America to help them stop the violence that is making all these people flee for their lives. That's what we should do. We actually have a good model in Plan Colombia, which turned a, a, a narco state into an American tourist destination in the space of about 15 years. This kind of aid is hard, but it is exactly what we should be doing to address this What about issue. more fencing? I, I don't think that's going to help. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure you've climbed over a fence before. I have. Right. You, you, so if you were president, you, me if you were president, wall, no more, you would not ladder. increase I mean, fencing at the border if you were president. I am I am all for strengthening border security where it matters. We do have a problem with a lot of drugs coming through our ports of entry. That's another place where Democrats don't like to admit that that's a problem. Like it is a problem. There are a lot of drugs coming through ports of entry. That's why Democrats are in favor of the technology we need to better screen people passing through ports of entry, but not building some silly concrete wall. And by the way, it's not just about whether or not we build this wall. It's about where we spend the money that would go to that wall. Think about this. China is stealing American jobs through the Internet. 
and American military secrets every single day because they're taking our ideas. Like that's central to the idea of how they run their economy. They just copy our stuff, right? This administration has literally allocated more money for a southern border wall than for cyber protection for the entire country. I think most Americans are waking up to the fact that these migrants aren't coming to take our jobs, they're fleeing for their lives. But China is very much taking our jobs. So that's why I'm saying we should build a cyber wall to protect American businesses and American jobs rather than a, a concrete border wall. I mean, like China did that 3,000 years ago or something. I mean, that was the Great Wall of China. I mean, they, they've moved past that. Like, let's, let's, let's get with the times here, you know? President Trump, in a general election, if you were the Democratic nominee, he'd be running to, on immigration constantly. He did it in 2016. Do you th he would talk about asylum laws. Do you think asylum laws should be changed at all to limit the amount of people who could come into the country? No, asylum law is a moral responsibility that we have as the United States, and we've got to return moral leadership to the White House. So I'm not going to compromise on that, but what I would do is make sure that we have many, many more asylum judges so that people don't come here and wait two or three years before they get their case decided. If you come and seek asylum in the United States, you should do what Germany does, and Germany's done this successfully despite having a massive influx of, of refugees, especially from Syria. They, ha they decide asylum cases in about 30 days so that we get an answer. And either you have to turn around and go back or you're legally allowed to stay. But you're not staying here in limbo for two or three years until that case is decided. Senator Warren and a few other Democrats running have talked about decriminalizing migrants coming across the border. Do you agree with that? If you cross the border illegally, then that's illegal. It should want, be a crime. I want, um, I want people to come to America legally. I want an immigration system that encourages immigrants to come here because it's good for our economy, it's good for our culture, it's who we are as a nation. We are a nation of immigrants. But I don't want a system that encourages them to come illegally. I want a system that encourages them to come legally. I think that that plan would do the opposite. If you were on stage this week, you would be perhaps standing somewhere near Vice President Biden. And you were the, one of the first people to go into Baghdad in 2003. You were just talking about that earlier before we went on. Former Vice President Biden voted to authorize that war. Should that vote be a deal breaker? That's up to the American people uh, whether or not what do you a think? deal breaker. I don't think it should be a deal breaker. I think people make mistakes, but I do think it was a mistake. And I think the vice president should, should admit that. I've made mistakes in life. Let's, let's admit them and, and move on because that's how you learn from mistakes. Admit it but, or apologize for it? Well, whatever it is. But the point is that these things matter because look at where we are today. We're, we're, a, we're on the brink of going to war with Iran, and there are a lot of frightening parallels with how we got into Iraq. You've got advisors like John Bolton, literally the same person who uh, pushed us into Iraq, trying to push us into Iran, along with people like Mike Pompeo. You've got a commander-in-chief who dodged serving in Vietnam and therefore doesn't really have the credibility to say no to these hawks who want to go to war. That's incredibly dangerous for our country. And you have a very volatile situation. And America doesn't have a plan. This administration has no strategy to deal with Iran. They don't even, they're not even on the same page in their administration. Trump authorized airstrikes and an hour later decides he's not going to do it. What kind of message does that send to either our allies or our enemies? But right now the message is, Iran, go ahead and shoot down a $120 million American aircraft because we're not going to do anything in response. So judgment matters. Judgment matters. Leadership matters. If Having a plan matters. And 
and that's not the if case. If judgment matters and leadership matters, does Vice President Biden's vote on Iraq give you pause about his leadership and judgment? There are a lot of places where I disagree with many of the different candidates. Joe Biden is a mentor and a friend of mine. I respect his service. He's a great American. Um, but I do think he was wrong on this case. Uh, I think he were, there are places in, in Iraq where he was I think he was wrong to say that we should divide up the country. I think that would have made the divisions in Iraq worse um, than they even are today. So there are many places where I disagree with his foreign policy decisions. And when he was in the White House with President Obama, I was one of the few Democrats who was actually willing to speak out and criticize that administration when I disagreed. I also praised them. Uh, when they um, put forward the Iran nuclear deal, I didn't think it was the best deal uh, on earth. But I went to Israel. I met with Prime Minister Netanyahu, who was the chief critic of this deal. And I asked him, just explain to me, Mr. Prime Minister, how you get a stronger deal. He couldn't answer that question. And so I came out and supported the deal. And my statement was on the front page of, of the Obama administration's website, whitehouse.gov or whatever, for, for several weeks that year. So I've never been afraid to support the administration, but also not afraid to criticize it. And I think that's what Americans want, is, is a leader who's not afraid to criticize his own party. And most Americans, though, are still getting to know you. And you're running, in part, a foreign policy campaign. In are part. You, are you a, part. a foreign policy, member of the foreign policy establishment in the Democratic Party? No, I don't think anyone would make would, would Why not? label me a part of the establishment. What makes you different because than from the like very like President Biden or a seasoned hand? Well, first of all, just I'm clearly not part of the establishment because I've been willing to take the establishment on from when I first on ran for Where on foreign policy, though? On foreign policy, I disagreed with their decision to pull out of Iraq so quickly that we would have to go back in, which is exactly what happened. So I was very outspoken uh, on that. When ISIS swept into Iraq, because we had pulled out so quickly, I said the problem here is political, not just with troops. And I disagreed with the Obama administration in putting a lot of troops in to solve this political crisis. So those are a couple of, of, of examples of where I've been openly critical. But it's only just when I think it's the right thing for the country. I'm always going to do what I believe is the right thing for the country. And I'm not afraid to take on the Democratic establishment to do so. Do you consider yourself a non-interventionist? Yes, because I have seen the costs of intervention very, in very real and in human terms. That doesn't mean that intervention is off the table. It always should be a threat. But we better exercise, we better exhaust every other alternative before we put young American lives in danger. And I think one of the problems with Washington right now is there aren't enough people in Congress or in the administration who actually understand the costs of war. Let's, let's stick with that, because during your second combat tour, you fought Iranian proxies. What would a war with Iran look like? It would be very bloody. It would be very bloody. Um, I remember one of the ways we, we, one of the effects that we saw of having Iranians in Najaf when, um, when we were fighting there is all their mortar fire was way more accurate and a lot of Americans got hurt, to put it, to pull it, put it lightly. And um, so, yeah, look, I've fought Iranians on the ground. And, and I'll tell you, as a commander in chief, I will fight them again if it's necessary. But this is not necessary. It is not necessary for us to go to a war with Iran. It is not necessary for us to, to spend trillions of dollars, as we've already spent in Iraq and Afghanistan, for a war that we do not need to fight. And it would be it would be a bloody mess. Others in the administration are saying there is a case for war. Do you not trust the intelligence that has been shared publicly by this administration on Iran? 
I trust our intelligence agencies and I trust our intelligence professionals. I do not trust this administration's interpretation of our intelligence because I've seen them skew it for their own advantage. And, I, and I've seen that in classified uh, briefings and in unclassified briefings. It's very dangerous. Th this is, you know, I, I get the fact that national security isn't a top issue in the election right now. It is. But national security, well, it, it is actually. I mean, if you look at the polling, I guess technically it is. People say it's not. But this is why it's so important to have a commander-in-chief that we can trust. Skewing intelligence? You, are you saying the hawks in the administration are trying to pull the country into war? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Terms. Well, false or misinterpreted terms, exaggerating threats, uh, talking about what Iran is doing to American troops as if it's never happened before. I mean, let's, let's not forget, 10 years ago, they were literally killing American troops in Iraq. Now, uh, the administration has a threat of a mortar attack on the Baghdad embassy, and we pull all, everybody out. I mean, it's just, it does not comport with history. What they're trying to do is is set off some sort of confrontation like the Gulf of Tonkin incident that got us into Vietnam and use that as an excuse to go to war. And even when they do that, I don't think they have a plan. Bolton and Pompeo talk about regime change in Iran. But if we go to war with them, who's that going to empower? That's going to empower the Iranian hardliners. And so I think we, even if we did get regime change, we'd probably get a worse regime. They have not thought this through. The president does not have a strategy, and it is incredibly dangerous for the United States of America and for the young Americans who will have to bear the cost if we go to war with Iran. If you were president, what would your red line be for military action in Iran? What I would do, first of all, is I would do everything I could to deter that escalation. And but you what, have what's to the threshold for action then? If you don't want to have action now, what's the threshold, there, there, if any? There is, there is no specific threshold because you don't want to tell your enemy exactly what that threshold An is. An attack on but, Americans? But what you do want to do is show them very clearly that we will respond if you, if you attack. Um, being completely indecisive about how to handle the fact that they shot down this American aircraft is the wrong approach. The second thing we have to do is we have to engage our allies. We have to bring our allies back into this. You know, it's not just America that wants ships to go through the Persian Gulf. A lot of our allies do too. That's an opportunity we should get to expand um, the coalition, which of course this, admi this administration is doing the exact opposite. Third, we need to articulate what the end game is here. What do we want Iran to do? The administration says regime change. They're not going to do that. Imagine if Iran said to us, okay, we'll agree with, with you as long as this administration takes a hike and you give power to the Democrats. I mean, it's just completely unrealistic. Would you revive the Iran deal if elected? We need to strengthen the Iran deal, but we, the nuclear deal. But we need, we need to get back into it, but we should use this as an opportunity to strengthen it. But make no mistake, the reason we are where we are today is because Trump pulled us out of that nuclear deal with no plan whatsoever to put in its place. And we're not only losing, we're not only in danger of going to war with Iran, we're losing our allies, our European allies in the process, who are now constructing some alternate banking system to go around our sanctions. The, the, stakes, are, the stakes are really high here, and that's why I do talk about national security, because, you know, Bob, the most frightening day that I had, I've ever had as a member of Congress was the afternoon that, as a, as a member of the Armed Services Committee, we, a small group of us flew around in a doomsday plane over Washington. And, you know, it's kind of like you see in the, in, the, in the 1950s movies with a lot of old technology and seems like out of Dr. Strangelove or something. And at one point, they, they sit you down and they um, run you through an exercise. And I expected some exercise to start like, well, the Soviet Union is shooting 100 intercontinental ballistic missiles at us. 
I can't tell you what it is because, or what it was because it was classified, but the exercise they ran us through was so frighteningly realistic. I said that could happen this afternoon and could get us into a nuclear war. And then they explain how the decision is made about whether to launch missiles in response and how the decision is made by the President of the United States. And they're very, the Air Force is very proud of how this system can't be hacked so no one can impersonate the President. And at one point a colonel said to me, you know, sir, this system is basically foolproof. And I said to myself, yeah, unless the guy at the top is a fool. A fool. That's your phrase for President Trump. You mentioned his experience in Vietnam. Deferm <laughs> well, his lack of experience his, in Vietnam? During the Vietnam era. So he had multiple deferments, including a medical deferment for bone spurs. Do you believe those deferments? No, of course not. I mean, everybody knows that they're, they're fake. And what Trump doesn't seem to understand is that there was not some empty seat in Vietnam with his name on it. Some American had to go in his place. You know, I'd like to meet that American hero someday who went in Donald Trump's place, and I, and I, and I hope he's still alive. So you're saying he essentially let someone else go in his place and perhaps lost their life? Correct. What does that make President Trump? It makes him, it makes him unpatriotic. And I don't know why Democrats have sort of ceded patriotism to conservatives and Republicans. Because I know what patriotism is about. You know, patriotism is not hugging the American flag. It's fighting every day to make sure the American flag stands for something. It's being willing to stand up and serve the country when the country needs you most, when our values are under assault. Trump has a totally warped view of patriotism. And that's one of the things that I am pointing out in this campaign. And I think it's important that we take on Trump as commander-in-chief, take on his vision of patriotism if we want to win this race. If you were the nominee, would you put Vietnam and President Trump's deferment at the top of your message against him? Would you make it an issue in a general election? No, it, it wouldn't be at the top of, I mean, I mean, I think a challenge for any nominee is to pick where do you start with this guy because he's got so many issues, right? Um, so I don't know that that would be the top. But I do think we need to talk about values and about service and about what it means to be the chief public servant in the United States of America, what that responsibility means as commander in chief. And whether you're there for your own vain interests or you're there to truly serve the people of the United but States. But decades on, there should still be a price to pay for what his choices and those deferments during the Vietnam. Well, the problem is that I think they inform who he is. I know there are a lot of people who didn't serve in Vietnam because they disagreed with the war and whatnot and actively protested it. Senator Bernie and Sanders was a conscientious objector. Sure. Well, that's actually legal, right? Lying about your medical forms is not. Maybe that should be part of the impeachment proceedings. I don't, the, the point is that, that let's, let's examine where this informs who he is as a leader and as a commander-in-chief, and I think it's, it's not good for this House country. Democrats should investigate the deferments? Um, I don't think it's our top priority, Bob. I what think we've got a few things to go through first. <laughs> what about Vice President Biden? Multiple deferments, also had one medical deferment for asthma. Look, as far as I know, they were legitimate deferments, and, and that's very different than, than lying about bone spurs. But how I also you, know you, that... Wait, but I, how do you know that President Trump is lying about bone spurs, in your view, and medi uh, the medical deferment for asthma for Vice President Biden is legitimate. What gives you that confidence in both of those conclusions? Bob, as I said, as I've heard about Vice President Biden, so that's, that's as far as I'll go. I don't know the details. Um, Do you have any questions about his deferments? Uh, 
look, if we want to go into it, sure, we can. Um, but I've never heard anyone question Vice President Biden's deferments, and God knows um, there have been an awful lot of questions about, about how Trump got his. But more importantly than that, it's, it's how this informs the kind of leadership that they bring to the, to the country. You know, whether you look at this as a selfless leader who's trying to do the right thing for the American people or someone who is a selfish leader who's trying to do the right thing for himself. And for all my disagreements with Vice President Biden, I've never thought of him as a selfish leader. But I think most Americans, even many Americans who support Trump, that know that that's, that's all, that's about who he is. As a veteran, what do you make of the president's relationship with the military? He puts a lot of generals in his cabinet. Should there be a, a starker line between civilians and military leaders? Well, I think there are a lot of generals in his cabinet because they don't want this to go off the rails. And I think it would be a massive mistake to assume that the generals in Trump's cabinet are supportive of Donald Trump. Have you heard that through the grapevine? Or more directly. <laughs> How so? <laughs> You're a good reporter. I'm not going to go into it. Um, but I, I, look, You're I think if you, look at the, if you look at the, well, he's not in the cabinet, but if you, look at, uh, if you look at the values that these people have always represented in their service to the country, there's a fundamental disconnect between those values and the values of Trump and his administration. But there are people, and it's not just people in the cabinet, it's not just general officers. There are good Americans who are serving the country in this administration because they believe it's the best way to keep the country on track. And someday, some of those stories will come out. For all the bad stories of people who are terrible, who are in this administration, um, there are some good stories as well, and someday I think that'll be told. It was announced today that in South Korea, that there are likely a third, there's likely going to be a third summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. You've talked about a Pacific version of NATO. Any hopes for a third summit between the president and Kim Jong-un should it go forward? This is another place where I don't think Americans appreciate just how dangerous it is having a, uh, a, an, an, an erratic, um, insecure uh, leader in the world with his finger on, on um, you know, the nuclear button uh, conducting policy by, by Twitter. I mean, Kim Jong-un is he's very, very dangerous. And that's a joke. But um, the point I thought, is that I didn't know where you were going there. The point is that we have two which, which very erratic leaders with nuclear arsenals trying to figure out a fundamental national security conflict that is very dangerous, not just to the but United there, States or North Korea, there, but to the world. Is there any upside to engaging with autocrats? There might be. I'm not sure there's much upside to having this man, Trump, uh, engage with autocrats. I think it's very dangerous. What we need in North Korea is a plan, and it's a place where you bring our allies together, not scatter them to the winds. Trump has done the opposite. He has pushed our allies in the Pacific and, frankly, around the world apart. What we need to do is strengthen the alliance we have in the Pacific, not only to contain uh, North Korea's nuclear missile program, but also to contain the rise of China. That's something that we can do to tangibly improve our security in the Pacific. Trump's doing the opposite. I asked a few of your colleagues in the House, Democrats, why isn't Congressman Moulton's campaign really gaining traction at this time? And they said the answer is simple, in their view, privately. You went against Speaker Pelosi in her leadership race, and you're paying the price, they said, <laughs> in the party. Do you have any regrets about your opposition? I mean, nothing could be farther from the truth, because, do you, I mean, first of all, I went against her for principled reasons, and it wasn't just her. 
it was the leadership of our house that's been there for a combined total of 100 years because I'm not someone who just talks about a new generation of leadership, I fight for it. And I spent the last two years fighting to flip the House of Representatives. And of the 40 seats that we flipped to take back the House, about half of those candidates were, were candidates, including many fellow veterans, um, that I heavily supported on the ground across this country. And one of the things I learned from traveling all across this country, including to a lot of the states that we have to flip if we're gonna win the presidency, is nobody likes the Washington establishment. So it makes me a much stronger nominee that I was willing to take on our leadership here in Washington, not a weaker nominee. So look, I think the reason why I'm, I'm just getting started here is because I'm just getting started. I've only been in the race for two months. But have donors been cold? Have they said, you oh, want no. to get the speaker? No, not Hard at all. Hard for us to give money to someone. I mean, a, a handful, very, very few, very, very few. What, what I hear much more often is, here's someone who actually stands up for his convictions who's not just getting cowed by the, by the Washington political establishment. And that's what people want in a leader. You know, that's what people want in middle America. They don't want someone who's just gonna do what all the party bosses in Washington tell them to do. What doomed the rebellion? I covered it for the Post. If there, there was an appetite on the campaign trail, as you just laid out, why did it fail? Well, I don't think it failed at all, because what well, we got, speaker. But, but that's not what we were after. What we were after is generational change. And as a result of us giving her the votes that she needed to become speaker, because let's remember, she only won the speaker's race by five, and we gave her seven votes with the deal on term limits. As a result of that, we have a deal on term limits, which means that this next generation will actually get a chance to lead. And candidly, Bob, maybe we made a mistake in just pushing for new leaders without that deal being part of the equation initially, because what if we had gotten three new leaders who themselves were there for a combined total of 100 years. And 20 years from now, people look at me and say, well, that was a lot of good, Seth. You just got a new um, you know, dynasty, all right? We also got the climate change subcommittee. We got the voting rights subcommittee. We got things that would never have happened to move this caucus forward if we hadn't had that democratic debate about who our next leader should be. But most importantly, this historically diverse class of freshmen, the most diverse class we've ever seen in Congress, will actually have a chance to lead in the near future. Have you spoken to her about your the, 2020 bid? Oh, she, she, she saw me last night and, and said, you know, you know, good luck and everything. She knows I'm going down to Miami. Um, she came up to me, actually, to say that. Um, I was flattered. We then talked a little bit about Iran and about how dangerous um, the, situation, the situation is right now. And um, she you know, talked a little bit about her private meeting with the president and what's being said and, and the discussion back and forth. Um, so look, I have a lot of respect for her. And I, I, you know, you'd have to ask her, but I think that, that she has respect for me. Um, we can have our disagreements, but you know, there's a time to vote for captain and then there's a time to just fight on the same team. And that's what we're doing. So I checked in with your colleagues about their view, also some strategists out in the early states, and they say you're going to a lot of VFW halls, and you're talking about mental health, and you're talking candidly about your own experience with post-traumatic stress from Iraq. What's that been like to engage with veterans on that issue, an issue that's often left to people's private life, put on a shelf, not discussed publicly? Well, Bob, first of all, I think it's important to say that this wasn't an easy decision for me to decide to talk about post-traumatic stress. And I, and I guess I became the first presidential candidate in American history to talk about um, dealing with mental health myself. Even though there are great examples, Lincoln, Grant, um, you know, arguably Eisenhower, maybe Bush, who've, who've had post-traumatic stress or depression in their, in their lives and, 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 and been great leaders nonetheless. 
But I decided that if I'm applying for the top leadership position in the country, then I ought to lead by example. And I've been talking about taking care of veterans and mental health. I make it a pri I go to the VA myself to get my, my health care. I've been talking about it ever since I came to Congress, but I almost felt disingenuous talking about these issues, advocating for them, and not sharing my own story. So I decided that I would try to lead by example and, and explain how I've struggled and dealt with post-traumatic stress since coming back from Iraq. And the story, one of many, that I, that I chose to share was a story about um, heading north towards Baghdad in the early days of the war. And uh, the Iraqi army was attacking us from the north and sending troops towards our position as we were advancing. But unfortunately, there is a car uh, of a young family that had gotten caught up in that. And the Marines just ahead of us shot the car up. It, it had, when my platoon just behind them came to it, the car was off the side of the road. The mother and father were obviously dead. But there is a young, like a five-year-old boy, lying in the middle of the road, still alive and, and writhing in pain. And at that moment, I made one of the toughest leadership decisions I've ever made in my life, which is to drive around him and keep going. Because I knew that if I stopped our battalion's advance, it would endanger the lives of dozens, if not hundreds, of Marines. I knew there were medics that were following closely behind us who could take care of that boy. But there is nothing I wanted to do more in my life at that moment than just stop everything and get out and take that boy in my arms and try to save his life. And that image is not something that leaves you easily. That limit, the image was the first time I felt truly confronted with the horrors of war. It's one of the reasons why I'm so careful as a United States Congressman about getting us into war again. But it's also an image that, that haunted me when I came home. And there, were, there was a time when I couldn't get through a day without thinking about that, that boy. And my decision to go get help, to talk to a therapist, wasn't easy, partly because as haunting as that was, I actually wasn't having terrible symptoms. I never felt suicidal. I wasn't worried about driving down the road and having a bomb blow me up. A lot of fellow vets were having symptoms like that. So in some ways, I felt maybe this isn't even really post-traumatic stress. But I decided to get help. I spoke to a therapist. And, and it made a world of difference. And I think that having gone through that, having dealt with it, and having really an understanding of what it means to live with the consequences of making a life or death decision, in a way that no one else in this campaign has. I think that's made me a stronger leader and it's made me a, even a better candidate. But more importantly, sharing this story has helped other Americans share theirs. And the reason we were at the VFW in, in Las Vegas, for example, in a part of the city that no other Democrat had been to, you know, um, a packed room but um, full of people, mostly, um, mostly people of color, and in that room, we, we went there to just have a veterans town hall where other people could share their stories. And there were a couple of Vietnam veterans who got up and shared a story after I shared mine. They said they've never, never shared with anyone since the Vietnam War. So we want to just normalize mental health care. Just make Americans realize that mental health care is just health care. And just like you should go to get an annual physical, whether you're sick or not, you should take care of mental health issues as well. My plan to make annual uh, mental health care checkups check routine for everybody in the military, then set that as an example for the rest of the country by making uh, annual mental health care checkups routine for everybody in high school, 
where mental health issues are skyrocketing, by the way, and then establish a, a, a three-digit 511 national hotline for no matter what problem you're having, feeling suicidal, or just need to talk to someone, you can get help right away. That's the most ambitious mental health plan on the, on the presidential trail, and I've been struck by how many lives are touched by this issue. You're not the only veteran who's running. Congresswoman Gabbard from Hawaii, she was here a few weeks ago. A veteran served in the Middle East. Uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, has also been on this stage. It's a sensitive question. You're all veterans, and we appreciate your service. But as a candidate, is there any contrast your experience offers compared to theirs? You were a combat veteran four tours in Iraq. Does that give you a different type of experience if you're seeking to be commander in chief? Well, I had a leadership experience. I mean, I, I was there leading troops on the ground in combat, which is different than, um, than the others. I have great respect for their service, and, uh, and I'm friends with both. Uh, uh, Tulsi Gabbard and I are in the same bipartisan workout group um, on Capitol Hill, so we see each other all the time, and, 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 um, and I like her a lot. Um, but I think it is important to understand that this, the experience is different. I mean, I was leading troops on the ground. My fundamental job as a platoon commander was to take this unbelievably diverse group of Americans, people from all over the country with different religious beliefs, different political beliefs, and get them united behind a common mission in the midst of a very divisive environment, in the midst of a war that many of us disagreed with. And I think that that leadership experience, bringing people together from across this country and getting them united behind a common mission is the kind of leadership we need from the next Commander-in-Chief in a very divided time in American history. Mayor Buttigieg has faced questions about race this week. A white police officer shot and killed a black man in South Bend. You just mentioned diversity from your military experience. What assurance can you give black voters and minority voters that you understand their challenges? That I, that I will fight for them. Um, that, um, what specifically, though? So let me go through the specifics, but let me just talk about it in general first, which is that the leadership experience that I had um, meant that I had to earn the trust of people who were very different than me and earn their trust, not just to vote for me, but to literally risk their lives for what we were engaged in in Iraq. I had a very diverse platoon, um, and that kind of leadership matters, I think, when we're trying to build the coalition we need to win this race. Because think about it, if we're gonna win this race, which I think will be much harder to do than many Democrats think, we're gonna have to build a coalition that includes everybody in our party, everybody in the Democratic Party, all different sides of it, together with those independent Obama-Trump voters, and even some disaffected Republicans. And to do that, we have to earn the vote of everyone in our party. And I think for two, to get to the heart of your question, Bob, you know, for too long, Democrats have just taken the black vote for granted. I mean, we wouldn't be where we are as a party or as a country without the black vote. We certainly wouldn't have so how will a you senator not take from, it for granted? from Alabama. I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. We certainly wouldn't have a senator from Alabama without the black women. But rather than talk about the issues that, that, that we deserve to talk about, um, we're not doing that. So what does that mean? I've called for a new Voting Rights Act in America. Because in America today, voter suppression still exists. If it didn't, I think Stacey Abrams would be the governor of Georgia. And we need to address that. Not only to restore the protections that were in the previous Voting Rights Act, but to truly end partisan gerrymandering, to truly give every vote in this country equal weight to get rid of the electoral college. reparations? I also think we need to have a very serious conversation about reparations because the heart of reparations is repair. And yes, I support the idea that there is a legacy from sla slavery and reconstruction that we have not dealt with as a country. 
And when someone like Mitch McConnell gets up there and says it's not our fault, that is not leadership and that is not responsibility. But because support, regardless of but whether... But you support reparations or not? Yes, because... So you support well, he, a conversation about it. But well, this is what, well, I'm going to explain what that means. Because regardless of whether it is our fault, it is our opportunity to fix this legacy. And what does that mean? It means that, that historic discrimination in housing needs to be put to an end because a lot of black people can't get housing. It means the historical, the historic discrimination in our education system that still persists today, you can see it in the statistics, has got to end. It means that people who have been systematically disenfranchised from participating in our political process needs to end. It means criminal justice reform. Uh, I've been a, uh, a leading advocate um, for not only legalizing marijuana, but expunging the records of those who've been convicted of marijuana crimes. Because there is a story recently of a black man in Louisiana who was put in prison for life for selling $20 worth of weed. It, Paul Banafort is doing seven years for going against the interests of the United States of America. All right, this is a historically unjust system. I, I, smoked, I smoked weed in college, in high school. Now, I didn't get caught, but you know what? If I had gotten caught, I'd probably be fine, because I'm a white guy. But we have a system of justice in America right now that is not equal, black and white, rich and poor. I think that every cop should be required to wear a body cam and have it on. I think that we need to end the death penalty, which is disproportionate, grossly disproportionately applied um, to black America. These are the kinds of conversations that we need to have. I support Ta-Nehisi Coates' position um, on this bill in Congress that sets up a commission to have this discussion and debate and decide what these reparations should be. But I also believe in what uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn says, and I've, I've talked to him about this in, in South Carolina. Um, saw him there this weekend. He has a 10-20-30 plan, which means that 10% of the resources for any federal agency go to communities with 20% or higher poverty for the last 30 years. Because these are the communities that have been historically left behind. And we have an opportunity, as our generation, regardless of how responsible we feel for this, to fix it. And that's an opportunity we should take. Senator Warren, your home state senator, you're not supporting her, you're running against her. <laughs> Could she beat President Trump in a general election? Uh, you know, that, that's up to the American voters. But I, I do think that I do think that this race is going to be harder to beat, harder than many Democrats think. I think Trump's going to be harder to beat. And I say that, Bob, because I've spent a lot of time in parts of the country that we need to, that we need to win back. And I think his support runs deeper than, than many Democrats think. So we've got to make sure we choose a nominee who can build that coalition, who can bring everybody together in our party, who can, who can prove that he or she is going to work hard to earn those votes, not take them for granted, but also earn the votes of independents, of, of Obama-Trump Republicans, uh, sorry, Obama-Trump Obama voters, and even some disaffected Republicans. That's the coalition that we need to build. I've built coalitions like that before um, in very tough environments, like in the middle of a war, uh, but also here in Congress, where I'm, where I'm very proud of my, my record of actually getting things. So that's the coalition you'd like to see. But on Senator Warren, she has many plans, as you know, one major one is 2% annual tax on assets above $50 million. Is that a realistic plan? It's not going to work. Other countries have tried it and it doesn't work. So I like the, the, the spirit of the idea that everybody's got to pay their fair share. But what would be smarter, I think, is just to make sure we have a tax system where everybody does, in fact, pay. 
The problem with the system that she's laid out is it's going to be very easy for the wealthy to hide their assets and get around this tax. So you can put that tax in place, but people aren't going to pay it. I believe in a tax system where everybody pays and there's fairness in the race. Let me just ask, let me just ask this. How many of you in the audience today, how many of you paid more than a dollar in taxes last year? A, f a few hands? Most of the hands are in the air. Like pretty much everyone's hands in the air, okay? That means that every single one of you paid more than Amazon and Netflix combined. And more than Donald Trump has apparently paid in the last 30 years. <laughs> That's not a fair system, Bob. Yep. That's not a fair system. What we need to do is not pit one group against the other, but just say that everybody in America is going to pay their fair share. What does that mean? It means the corporate rate should go up from about 21 to 25. It means that the, the, the rate, you know, Warren Buffett always talks about how he pays a lower rate than his secretary. If you're trading money, because you've got so much of it, you can trade it, you should pay the same rate as people who are working a hard, a hard working job. That's what tax fairness means, and I don't think her system achieves that. We have just a few minutes left. Let's, let's do a lightning round. All right. Let's finish with some politics. Uh, could Senator Sanders expect your support in a general election? If you I have made a commitment to support whoever the Dom Democratic nominee is because there's no one in this massive field that I think would be a worse president than Donald Trump. Big tech, make them utilities or not? The services that big tech provides, uh, like internet broadband access, should be treated as utilities, but I don't think you just nationalize these companies. If you, could, if you were on the debate stage either tonight or tomorrow, who is the one candidate you would target for criticism on policy grounds? Well, it depends what the question is. I mean, there are places where I disagree with you a must, lot of you the You must think candidates. about this a lot. Who? who no, I don't. I, I, I honestly, I don't think about that. What I think about is connecting with American voters because my job is not to disparage other candidates. Right. It's to earn the support of America. If you were on stage, would you be willing to talk about Vice President Biden's vote for Iraq or not? I have. I have in the past. Would you, would you do it on a debate sure, stage? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Would you put a woman on a ticket, on the ticket with you if you were the nominee? I think it's too early to make that decision, but let me tell you, it is a... It's a real problem that we've never had a woman be president or vice president, or even, you know, there's never even been a woman who's been chief of staff in the White House. Have you reached out to President Obama? Uh, he reached out to me early in this whole process. Have you talked to any former president during this process, President Carter, President Clinton? You know, I haven't talked to Carter or Clinton, um, but I have, had a long, I have had a long conversation with Obama. How should Democrats respond to the accusation of E. Jean Carroll who has accused President Trump of sexual assault, rape? We should take it seriously. We should take it seriously and we should listen to what What action should said. be taken, if anything? Well, this is another place where um, I, I don't actually know legally what the appropriate action is um, in, in terms of supporting the investigation, but we should do whatever it takes to bring the truth to light. She deserves to be heard. What are your personal metrics for staying in the race right now, financially, politically? My personal metrics are whether my message is resonating with the voters who are going to decide this election. That's, that, that's ultimately what matters. Um, I knew that getting in this late, race late, because I have this very um, young daughter at home whom I um, love to death, uh, would give me a, a disadvantage early on. But I've also run in tough races before. You know, in that, in that first campaign for Congress where I run against, ran against this 18-year incumbent, we did our first poll after seven months on the campaign trail, and I was only 53 points down. I mean, I'm not even 53 points behind Biden at this point. So, I mean, I feel like, but, but it took a while. It took a while to just meet enough people for the message to resonate, but the people 
that I get in front of are, have been very positive. That's what I need to keep doing. It's just meeting more voters. Uh, we're actually, we have an ad up on TV um, tonight before the debates to just introduce myself to more Americans in the early primary states. That's the kind of thing that I'm going to keep doing. I won that race by 11. Right. 53 points down, won by 11, won a tough general election in a district that voted by 13 points for our Republican governor by 14. So I've done this before, and that's what I'm setting out to do. What are you looking for from the moderators tonight as you watch the debate? I want them to ask tough questions. I want them to hold people accountable because I think that's what the American people want. What about President Trump if he's tweeting about the debate? How are Democrats, how should Democrats handle that kind of presence always looming over their, their race? You know, when, when Trump came out and, and criticized the Mueller investigation by calling it a, a witch hunt, the greatest witch hunt in American history. He tweeted presidential harassment last night. Yeah, I, when he tweeted about the witch hunt, I just said, um, you know, as a representative of Salem, Massachusetts, I can assure you this is false. <laughs> I think that's the way we handle Trump. You know, put him in his place, but don't get down and rust wrestle with him in the mud. You know, you wrestle with a pig, you get muddy. So put him in his place and then move on and talk about your vision for the country. That's what I'm doing in this campaign. Are you just going to live in New Hampshire, your neighboring state? Is that the key to your strategy? <laughs> um, it, I've actually spent a lot of time in, in South Carolina and Nevada as well as, as New Why Hampshire. Those have been, because I think there are a lot of there are places where the message is really resonating. Many veterans in those and there are And there are a lot of veterans there. Yeah, and that's a good place for me to start. And the question on everyone's mind as we just close this out is, how do you break out? It's such a crowded field. Do you need a viral moment? Do you need, what do you need? Because you're very low in the polls. You're an accomplished veteran. You're an accomplished lawmaker. How do you break out in this moment in 2019? You know, everyone asks, like, what's the viral moment? Um, or just what's the they're never out? Look, in that first campaign where I came back from a, you know, 53-point deficit to win by 11, there was never a single viral moment. It was just doing the hard work of meeting people where they're at and earning the trust of is American voters. Is that enough, voters. though, in this kind of environment? Well, I hope it is because I'm not going around doing crazy things just looking for a viral moment. The case I'm making to the American people is that I'm not a crazy leader. I'm someone that you can trust. And you're not going to agree with me on everything. That's not the case I'm trying to make either. I'm not just trying to promise a whole bunch of stuff and say, oh, you know, um, you'll agree with me on every issue. What I'm trying to say is that I can be a president of the United States and a commander in chief who spent a lifetime keeping Americans safe, and I will be a president that you can trust. Congressman Moulton, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.